Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. So in a time when COVID-19 is all on our mind, imagine if you had a life-threatening disease, one that almost took your own life numerous times, a disease that had no cure. In fact, you were the only person searching for a cure. Imagine if you were your own doctor racing for your own cure before it took your own life. Well, that's the real life story of Dr. David Fagenbaum, the former college athlete, medical doctor, and UPenn professor, and the author of Chasing My Cure, who literally took things into his own hands when the rare disease called Castleman's disease almost killed him numerous times. His story is a story of hope, optimism, the human spirit, and it's a glimpse into disease in a post-COVID-19 world. David, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It is so great to have you here. You know, I, I got familiar with you. I was, I remember, I remember this vividly. I was glancing through the New York Times and there was a before and after photo. And the before photo was, if I were to describe the photo, uh, a young, thriving college athlete who had the physique almost of like a professional athlete. In a photo, it looked like you were doing like an NFL combine. Um, It turned out you played football at Georgetown. So like there's this photo of this like physical specimen on the left. And then on the right, there's a photo of the same person, but the person is bald, extraordinarily thin, and had the stomach of you know, a, a picture you'd see from someone suffering from malnourishment and about to die. And it was the same person. And it was with a short time frame. And I said, holy cow, what? I, I read the whole profile on you. And then when you reached out, I was like, oh my God, we have to talk to this guy. So let's start. Walk us through your story. Sure. So you're, you're exactly right. It, it's crazy to look at those pictures. And, and honestly, it, it's um, more surprising for me now as I sit here that I'm on the healthy side of things. And I look more, I don't actually really look like I did way back oh, in, in the day. You look great. He looks great, guys. For you guys listening, he looks great. Healthy, thriving. So, yeah, it, it, if I go back to as a medical student, um, so, well, I guess I'll go back to, to Georgetown. So I played college football at Georgetown, um, was a quarterback, and um, never had any medical issues at all. Um, went to medical school at UPenn with the idea I wanted to become a cancer doctor in memory of my mom. She passed away while I was in college, and that really motivated me to want to treat patients in her memory. And there I was, a third-year med student, kind of fulfilling my dream, you know, training to become this oncologist. And out of nowhere, I started noticing I was more tired than usual. I noticed lumps in my neck. I noticed fluid accumulating in my legs. And I was just so, so exhausted. I mean, I was so tired that I would go from seeing a patient to finding an empty hospital room and going and taking a nap on the hospital bed for seven minutes. I would set my alarm for seven minutes. I'd wake up and go see the next patient, take another nap for seven minutes. It was um, hard to describe, and it was just out of nowhere. Nowhere. Uh, and I ended up taking a medical school exam and then going down the hall to the emergency department and saying, I've got this awful fatigue. I feel terrible. And um, they ran blood work and they said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. And it was just so terrifying to go from kind of being on one side of, of the hospital bed um, to, to the other. And uh, they hospitalized me and I became very, very ill. I gained 70 pounds of fluid. 
I had a rep. 70. 70, 70, 70 pounds of fluid. I it was completely immobilized. Um, I had a retinal hemorrhage that made me blind in my left eye. I can have total sight now, but blind in my left eye. I was so sick that um, back in November of 2010, the doctors didn't think I would survive. And my family came to say their goodbyes to me. And a priest came in and administered my last rites to me at 25 years old. And um, no one thought I would make it. But thankfully, right around the time that my last rites were read to me, the diagnosis was finally made. And I was started on chemotherapy. And that's what saved my life. But unfortunately, I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse. So what, what, what went on in your head with that first the first last rite because this was a unfortunately happened a couple times but I was terrified I mean I think that the 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 most notable memory I have from from having my last rites read to me and 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 believing that I wasn't going to survive was that I looked back on my life and um, I didn't regret anything that I had done or had said the things that I regretted as I laid in that hospital bed were things that I didn't do or I didn't say Um, the things I didn't say to my then girlfriend the the experiences that I would never have, like being a father and having a family, that is what really ate at me as I thought I was I was not going to live any longer. Um, and that has since really inspired um, a motto or, or um, something that I really live by, and that's think it, do it. Because what I realized is that things that I thought about doing and I wanted to do but I never did because I said, I've got all the time in the world. I'm 25 years old. Those are the things that I regretted. So now if I think it, I try to do it. And so what, so what happened next after that? So you thought you were going to die. Then there was a diagnosis. And what happened next? So I was diagnosed with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, which is a rare immune system disorder where your, your immune system attacks and shuts down your body's vital organs, your heart, your lungs, your liver, your kidneys. It's a rare disease. About 5,000 patients are diagnosed each year in the U.S., um, which is about as common as ALS. So it, it's rare like a disease like ALS, but certainly has much less um, public awareness. Unfortunately for my subtype, about a third of us will die within five years of diagnosis and another third die within 10 years of diagnosis. So um, I got this diagnosis. They started me on chemotherapy. And I became really hopeful that now that we had the diagnosis, maybe this thing would be under control. Um, Unfortunately, I relapsed just a few weeks later and needed another, uh, this time, a round of seven different chemotherapies um, to get my disease into remission. Um, And thankfully, the combination of seven chemotherapies did put my disease into remission for a short period of time. And there, there's even a moment that, um, that that I can remember was just so special for me, and that was um, when it was, it was New Year's Eve of 2010. And at this stage, I mentioned I first got sick in August, so now we're about five months of being in and out of the, most of the time in the hospital in critical condition. And the chemo finally kicked in, and I was finally well enough um, to, to stand up and go for a walk with my dad. and. Um, it was New Year's Eve at about 8 p.m., and we were walking around the, the hematology-oncology floor, and we passed a gentleman. He looked like he'd been drinking on New Year's Eve. He was kind of like swaying in his chair. And on our next lap, we saw he had fallen onto the ground. And so my dad ran over to him and helped him back into his chair. And he looked at my dad and I, and he said, thanks so much. Good luck to you and your wife. And we are like, wife? What is he talking about? Then I looked at my belly, and I realized he thought I was my dad's pregnant wife. <laughs> and we just burst into laughter, and we were crying and laughter. I turned to my dad, and I said, man, you've got an ugly wife. <laughs> um, but but that was you would think that would be a low point, but actually it was a, it was a high point. I was finally well enough to, to walk. I was finally well enough to stand up, and I was finally well enough to be confused as, as a pregnant woman. But that was okay. <laughs> Um, because I was just happy to be alive. And um, and that really, for me, I think it signaled this kind of 
uh, change in mentality where I, w- I was no longer this, you know, dying patient. I mean, I guess I was still a very sick person, um, but I was, uh, I-, I was ready to try to find some positivity in the midst of a really tough time. And so walk us through all the way to like today and finally getting to a place where you went from the hallway of being mistaken for, you know, a very bloated, bloated man mistaken for a, a woman to today. You definitely do not like, like look like a woman. Like walk us through that that process to healing. Sure. So um, I went back to medical school after spending about six months hospitalized. I spent some several months recovering, but went back to med school and I was on an experimental drug. It's the first drug to ever undergo a controlled, a randomized controlled trial for my disease. And I was really hopeful that this was going to keep my disease in remission. This was, this was the thing that we'd been hoping and praying for, for my mom. This was the cure for her that we'd hoped for. This is the cure for me that we'd hoped for that we finally had it. And I was back in medical school. And, um, unfortunately, um, about a year later, I relapsed on that drug. And that was such a, a difficult experience, not just because I was I was dying again in the hospital, but the psychological aspect of to realize that the only drug in development is not working for you and that there are no more promising leads. And so I, I promised my my dad and my sister and, and my girlfriend, Caitlin, that I would dedicate the rest of my life to trying to identify a treatment and maybe a cure for Castleman disease. At this stage, I was a third-year medical student, and obviously it was, it was unlikely that I would actually make progress in time to help myself, but I knew that I knew that I could no longer wait and hope for someone else somewhere to do it. And so I got involved in Castleman's research. I began conducting research at UPenn and created a foundation. Um, and uh, about a year later, while getting chemotherapy weekly to try to prevent a relapse, I relapsed again. Um, and thankfully, chemotherapy, the same combination, saved my life. Um, but this time, when I got out of the hospital, I knew that there was no way I would make it to Caitlin, my, my girlfriend, and I's wedding date, which was five months in the future, unless I found a drug that could keep me alive. And so I went back to all the samples I've been storing on myself, blood samples, lymph node samples from that relapse. And I ran a series of experiments on my samples. And um, from within the data, I found a pattern that made me think that a drug that was developed 30 years ago and had never been used before for Castleman disease might work for me. And um, based on the data that I generated and the fact that we had literally no other options, um, I started taking this drug um, called Serolimus, um, like I said, approved 30 years ago. And um, it's now been over six years that I've been in remission. Uh, and we started giving this drug to other patients. And so I'm, I'm, I'm here today uh, because of this drug um, and, and because of the support that helped me to find it. So what's going on mentally when you are put in the position of being the sole person in the world yep. looking for a cure for yourself Frank. when when there, when there is a hard you know in your mind there's a hard deadline yep. that if i don't meet i'm not gonna be around like what how, how do you, how did you manage that it, it was really tough i'm, I'm not gonna it's sugarcoated and say that it was easy it was it was frightening and um being a medical student, I had this like belief that there must be doctors out there and scientists figuring things out, and that no matter what disease I got or someone I loved got, there's you know there's progress being made, and and it was just really tough to wrap my head around exactly what you're asking. How did you know to go from being this hopeful person to realizing that if I don't do it, no one will? Um, it was really tough, but I do have to say that I was so fortunate. I still am so fortunate to have so many family, friends, people who supported me during this time because I couldn't have made it through it on my own. 
so did you ever, you know, what, what happens? I think so many people will say, they'll ask the question, of course, and I think part of it's hum- human nature. Why me? Yeah. I, so I think that I did ask that a bit early on, but, um, going through medical school and seeing all of the people who suffer through so many things and be working in a hospital, you sometimes get the sense, you know, why not me? I mean, there's all these amazing people out there who have every, every reason that they should not get a disease and they do. And you watch the suffering that they go through. So you almost feel like, you know, I'm no more deserving than anyone else is of my health. Do you think being an athlete, do you think that helped you in this process? I think being an athlete helped in, 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 in at least two ways. First, um, I mentioned I gained 70 pounds of fluid the first time I got ill. Um, I also lost 70 pounds of, of, of mass um, from like muscle mass, basically. Um, and so uh, I gained the 71st and then lost, lost about over 100 um, net. And um, having kind of that muscle mass it actually probably kept me alive um, for some of that time when I was so sick and I wasn't able to eat and I was on a feeding tube. Um, so very like literally, I think that all the exercise I've been doing for all those years actually kept me alive. Um, but then also uh, just emotionally, um, you can remember from your days playing college sports, the the challenges that, that, that your coaches put you through. I mean, I, I'm thinking about um, when one of our team members was late for a morning workout. And in one winter, we all had to go lie on the football field and roll on the field until everyone had, had basically gotten sick um, because they were just rolling. You get so dizzy that you, sure. you just get sick. That, and that was in like, you know, 20 degree weather in Washington, sure. D.C. That's, that's the kind of thing that, that prepares you, I think, in, in some ways for like, being in the ICU and, you know, dying, um, and the pain that you go through from, you know, fluid accumulation that, that sometimes I think that sports and and training like that can actually prepare you in some ways for it. And what role do you think faith played? I think faith played a, a differing role over time for me. Um, early on, I, um, I spent a lot of time hoping and praying that, um, that my disease would turn around and, um, and feeling like, um, that was really the only thing that I could do, um, was hope and pray. And there's a a turning point for me. And I actually talk about this a a lot in my book and and it's, it's around when I realized that I shouldn't just stop at hoping and praying. I realized that if I'm hoping for it and if I'm praying for it, that should actually drive my action. I mm-hmm. kind of had this previous belief that with faith, you pray for it and then you just believe. Uh, and there's a, a quote um, that my mom used to keep in her purse that I found after she passed away. It's from Pope John Paul, and it's about being invincible in hope. And I, and I really always had this thought that, like, you know, if you can if you can be hopeful and you, you can just believe that it'll happen. And then I found the rest of that quote. Uh, and Pope John Paul went on to say that if, if basically, if you were in a position to be able to take action, you know, you have a responsibility to take action. You shouldn't just wait, hope, and pray, or, or pray, hope, and wait. You know, pray, hope, and take action. And so for me, um, I, I've really moved into this kind of action mode. And so you've said you believe in the power of science and medicine. What else do you believe in now? I think that science, medicine, and, and I think the power of people to support one another, whether that's um, because there's some sort of 
uh, you know, deity, God that's um, creating order in the universe? I, I don't know. But what I do know is that the people on this planet, um, the people in my life have been so, so supportive and helpful to me in, in, in ways that, that I don't think I ever could have imagined. And so whether it's that they were put here to do that to help, um, I, I, I don't know. But I just know that the people and my family and loved ones have just been amazing. And so in terms of, so you, you almost died numerous times, five times, yeah. five times. Was that, you know, by the times you got from, you know, to the fourth and fifth time, like how did, how did, like what, what was going on in your head? Was there ever a point where you said, you know what, if, if I'm ready, I'm ready. How much did, did that cross your mind or was it yeah, fighting this the whole time? Like what was each I think I'm so curious about this because I'm going to make a bet that most people listening have not had a, a near-death experience. And so if you were drilled, like, did that experience change? Were, were, was each experience similar or different, and how so? They were really quite different. I think that um, the first thing I would say is that when I was for, dying for the first time, um, I if someone had told me at that stage you're going to survive this, but then it's going to come back again and again and again. And you're going to spend together, you know, all together many, many, many months on, on the verge and you're going to suffer. And, and if someone had told me what I was going to endure, I don't know if I would have had the mental strength to, to fight for that day. And, and I know it's a cliche, but because I literally was just fighting for that day and I didn't know what was in my future, I could do that. I can be like, I can right. fight today. I'm going to fight to breathe. I'm going to fight to survive today. Um, and so that was kind of how it was early on. Um, and then uh, what I didn't mention about Caitlin, um, so my now wife, we ended up making it to our wedding day, got married. Um, what I didn't mention is that just before I got sick, um, we actually had just broken up. We'd been dating for over two years, and we'd just broken up before I, I became ill. And um, when I, and one of the reasons we broke up was, or one of the reasons that we felt okay broke, breaking up was that we said, well, we're 25 years old. We've got all the time in the world. If it's meant to be, it'll work out. Um, and then there I was, you know, just a few months later dying. And um, we both realized we wanted to get back together, but um, I kept pushing her away. She would come to try to see me in the hospital, and I, and I didn't want to see her to see me like that. Um, but we eventually got back together after all those months. Actually, the picture of me with that huge belly looking so well, that was when she came to see me for the first time and somehow still um, you know, wanted to get back together. But we, once we got back together, it became a different sort of fight for me. It wasn't just you know me fighting for myself. It was, I want to survive so I can get engaged to this person so I can get married to this person. Um, and then, uh, more recently to, to have a family with this person, we actually have a daughter, she's 18 months old and, and, uh, we never thought that we would be able to, you know, to, to see this day. So for anyone listening who, you know, maybe is suffering, there's something going on, you know, probably not to the extent where, you know, that they think they're going to die, but whether it's, you know, mild autoimmune or just things are off. What advice do you have to those people, especially as it, it sounds like there's there's a there's a process, yeah. whether it's, you know, anger, sadness, resilience, like walk us through sort of like that mental process and what advice, what, what have you learned about how you handle that and advice you have for people struggling out there? I think for me, and, you know, everyone's going to handle things differently, but for me, 
the thing that helped me handle it emotionally the most, uh, or the first step was to figure out who is the expert that I need to go see. If you have a rare disease, it's, it's really critical. You find someone who really is experienced. So knowing that I was going to see the best person actually put my mind somewhat at ease saying, okay, well, at least I'm going to go see the best person. For then this. you discovered they didn't have an answer for you. <laughs> exactly. Then I discovered <laughs> that the, the world's expert only knows however much the world knows. And if the world doesn't know, then, then the world's expert doesn't know. So, but, but for, for many diseases, is going to the world's expert is, is really critical. And I think that that um, is important. I think that leaning on the people in your life that, that you love is so important. When I was watching my mom battle cancer, I had some kind of preconceived notions about how I should support her or be there for her. I thought that I always had to be positive, and I thought that we shouldn't ever talk about the really tough things because I thought that she wouldn't want to... Um, I didn't want to burden her with those sort of things. And then when I was the sick patient, and, and now that I am the sick patient, um, I've learned just how important it is to actually just be like totally authentic with the people that you love about these really tough things. I mean, if it's, um, you know, if it's important enough for you as a loved one or for you as, as a patient to think about, I, I think it's so important to share those feelings um, with the people that you love. On the science piece, you touched on this a little bit, you talk about in the book the, the Santa Claus theory of civilization, and in your opinion, is it just like Castleman's? Okay, very rare. What else is out there? And just how 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 has your view changed on the scientific community and all the scary things that are out there that maybe we don't even know about? Like I think very topical today, coronavirus. Exactly. It's like what the hell happened here? But like, just what's your take on? Yeah, so uh, the Santa Claus theory of civilization um, is really this concept that, and and I'm I'm was so guilty of feeling this way that, of course, for every disease, for every major problem, there must be people out there that are working together. You know, there's a workshop of elves figuring out solutions for diseases. I mean, there must be, right? Um, and I think that Google kind of like reinforces this concept because I feel like any question you could ever think of, you start typing it in and then Google f finishes your question. You're like, oh, wow, I'm not the only person that's thought of that. And, and so then you have this sense that like everyone's thought about everything and everything's being worked on or has been worked on. And then you realize and you, you learn that for a lot of problems, especially medical problems, um, there actually are not solutions. And in fact, there are 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans. So one in 10 Americans has a rare disease and 95% of them don't have a treatment. And wow. so, I mean, that's like mind blowing, right? And, and when you're in, even when you're in medical school and in healthcare, you don't learn or realize you don't learn about all the diseases where there aren't solutions. You learn about the diseases where there are solutions. And I think we really need to change that. So what did you learn about? Like, let's walk through Castleman's at the moment and, and like, what is it? What did the world know about it a couple of years ago? And then thanks to you and, and your work, what, what do we know about it today? Sure. So um, Castleman's at its heart is an immune system disorder where your immune system, which is supposed to be protecting you um, from things like coronavirus and, and other external pathogens. Also, your immune system also protects you against cancer. If it detects cancer, it will actually kill and eliminate cancer occasionally. So, you know, this thing that's supposed to be protecting you in Castleman disease for an unknown reason begins to attack you. So the thing that's supposed to be defending goes on the attack and it goes after your vital organs. 
And unfortunately, when I was diagnosed, um, the disease was considered to be um, really more like a lymphoma, so a cancer of, um, of the lymph nodes. And so it was treated only with chemotherapy because that's how you treat these sort of diseases. Um, but the reality is, is that even back then, we didn't know whether it should be called a lymphoma, a cancer, or if it should be called an autoimmune condition. And that's not really a fault of the med medical community because actually it has features of both. It's kind of cancer-like and also autoimmune-like. So it's a complicated disease, but the community really was putting it more in the cancer bucket right. and treating it with chemo. Right. And, and, you know, chemo is important. It saved my life seven times. But the research and the real changes that we've made um, into understanding what's going on, I run a lab at UPenn that's focused on studying this. I run a foundation that's focused on driving forward research internationally. And what we've learned is that, um, yes, it's cancer-like, um, but, but the autoimmune features are really critical, and there are drugs that can target um, the autoimmune aspects of the disease, so drugs that are already approved for autoimmune conditions. Um, and, and actually, in my case, the drug I'm on was developed for kidney transplantation 30 years ago. Um, because if you get a kidney transplant, your immune system attacks your kidney. And the way that this drug works is to suppress your immune system. And so if I'd gone to a doctor when I first got sick and said, I want to try this drug, they would have said, you're crazy. You're, you know, you're going to treat a, you know, something like cancer with an immunosuppressant. Um, but the research that we did and really just getting away from following dogma and following just the way things are done and saying, well, where's the data? Let's generate the data. That's how we got to where we are today. And, and we now have opened up a clinical trial where we give this drug to other patients. Unfortunately, it's only worked thus far in about a third of patients that have gotten the drug I'm on. So it's not the solution for everyone. And, um, you know, we're continuing to work for new drugs for other patients. It was just mind-blowing to me that there was a drug that been been around for 30 years. It makes me think, what else is out there that for some reason or another we're, we're not utilizing, we're not thinking about is sitting on a shelf in the back of a lab somewhere. And also, you know, as we think about whether it's coronavirus, climate change, I, I watched something recently on TV, like the, the hunt for what is the new drug. And what I didn't realize is it, it makes sense. Like so many drugs come from botanicals in certain parts of the world and, and finding that you know, rare mushroom or plant in Thailand, which is potentially the the next great drug that could help save lives and what's happening there. And so, wow. It, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, what you said, it, that's what keeps me up at night. So obviously I, I, I focus so much on Castleman disease, but I think the thing that really keeps me up at night is this question of how many drugs are already out there that are literally at your neighborhood pharmacy sitting there that could be a treatment or a cure for a patient that has a deadly disease and just no one even knows about it. Uh, and, and so, so the, the real challenge is how to, how to create a system so that all of these drugs that are already approved actually get studied and tested in other indications. And it's, and it's really hard to do that. There really are not very many financial incentives in place to get, because um, it takes a lot of time and effort sure. and money to, to do this kind of research. And, and we, we have to figure out a way. Because, I mean, just as you said, it, it's crazy to think. Like, the drug I'm on literally was at my neighborhood pharmacy, and no one had ever thought to try it. And then we started it, and now here I, I'm alive six years later. Later. Um, so I think that's that's a huge issue. It's something we call drug repurposing, taking a drug developed for one indication and trying it for another. Totally different application, but metformin, which people use for, for diabetes in our world, and, and, and the biohackers who are pursuing longevity, a lot of them are experimenting with metformin that's right. and, and measuring their, their biological age. So like a, a way different 
application, but when metformins derived, I think from like French lilac. Mm-hmm. So it's like, would you ever imagine this diabetes like people are using to? It's amazing, and actually, the drug I'm on, so sirolimus, is also called rapamycin, and yeah. this is another drug that yes. people are using at very low doses for this concept of you know anti-aging yeah. and long- longevity. And, and actually, the cool thing about about rapamycin, you mentioned the concept of how so many of these drugs do come from you know, naturally occurring products. This drug, rapamycin, was uh, first discovered on the island of Rapa Nui. Um, Easter Island is the other name for Rapa Nui. A drug company was looking for they were looking in, in the dirt of Rapa of this. Easter Island for potential drugs, and they found this molecule in the dirt. And um, you know, now here I am alive, fifty years later, because of some scientists went digging in dirt on Easter Island. Yeah, I, I, most people, and it was a surprise to me. Like I, I never really, well, I didn't really give much thought about it, but I, I never thought that so many of these life-saving drugs were born in the dirt yeah. of an island or in a jungle you know i would tend to think like okay there's like a chemist in a lab yep. with a coat you know you know they're not derived from the earth or botanicals or just the for like so yeah you know a lot and even the ones that are synthetically made in labs a lot of times they're inspired by naturally yeah. occurring products and so it's you find out that this one thing works and does this sort of thing and then you say i'm going to synthesize it and then i'm going to tweak it and make it even better so with what's happening in the world right now with coronavirus and you know people like bill gates have have publicly said what's most concerning to them is you know the the super bug we don't know yeah. about where my head is at is okay you've got the you've got the let's call it like the the big ones you've got cancer you've got heart disease uh, obviously you know huge huge issues and a lot of people are working heart disease i think we're all Understanding and there's a lot, a lot, a lot mm-hmm. with regards to lifestyle that we can do. Cancer, a little bit like can, you know, it's cancer is, is obviously a huge issue and affects so many families. You know, my family, your family. But then you've got like this, this, this long tail, if you will, yes. of whether it's the superbug or the virus that came out of nowhere, coronavirus. And what I kind of think, I'm still an optimist. I want to let people. I'm optimistic. Is we're entering a world where whether it's coronavirus or Castleman's or there's a, there's probably going to be a long tail of all these things that we don't know what the hell is going on. And that's potentially going to be a big problem. Yeah. Cause then you have, in some ways you are alluding like where, where the, where the, the money is, the opportunity, that's where resources go. But if we enter a world where it's, you know, okay, we've got maybe, I'd like to think we're getting to a place where cancer, we're, Getting, yeah, figuring things figuring out. things out but then we've got a long tail of like 50 other things and yeah. resources are just spread everywhere yeah. and that we're going to enter a world where there's we need a thousand guys like yep. you hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not going through the torture you went yeah. through to figure things out for and that's well, what's your take on where the world is going with this it's cra- it, it is crazy you know and what you're alluding to, I think, is also the fact that you know we're generating more data than ever before. So we're so we're we have the possibility to learn more about this long tail of diseases than ever before, but we're not necessarily harnessing it, and harnessing all those data in, in the way that we could. And so I, I think that, um, and I mentioned earlier this concept of drug repurposing. I, I'm really optimistic about this because basically these new tools of genetic sequencing and things called proteomics and transcriptomics, ways to to kind of um, 
profile of human disease in ways that we've never been able to do before. Those tools are available. And so what I'm really optimistic about is to use those tools to understand what's going on in people's individual diseases. You know, what, how does this disease work? And then not just trying to develop new drugs, which is the, the primary path is you figure out what's going on, you develop a new drug. But my what I really push for is let's figure out what's going on, then let's look in our rearview mirror and look at all the drugs that already exist and ask the question, if based on what I'm figuring out here in the lab that I see in this disease, could, could one of those old drugs potentially work? Because those old drugs are often generic and they're much cheaper than these new drugs that are being developed. And so it's good for the healthcare system for us to repurpose drugs. And it's really good for patients because if it's an old drug, then that means that you know that it got approved by the FDA for something and you know that it was safe enough to cross their thresholds um, as opposed to new drug development, which is going to have a lot more risk. So do you think that the number of you know, the, these, you know, unsolved cases or medical mysteries, do you think the number is increasing or do you think they were just misdiagnosed yes. 20, 30 years ago? I think that they were misdiagnosed. And for many of these diseases, we didn't didn't even have a name for what the disease was 20 or 30 years ago. So, um, so patients and individuals, they would suffer from their disease. No, no name was put on it and, and no treatment was given. Now, with these new technologies I was mentioning, you can put a name on the disease quite easily. You can say this disease is caused by this genetic mutation. But unfortunately, for most diseases, I mentioned 95% of rare diseases, that's where it ends. It's We can put a name on it. We know what you're going to go through because we know how other patients have dealt with your illness, but we don't have a drug for you. Um, and for many of these rare diseases, there are a lot of drugs in development. There's things coming down the pipeline, um, but we have to figure out ways to, to speed it up. And in 2020, you know, what, what role do you think, whether it's environment, lifestyle, nutrition all the all those the all those factors like what role do you think that's playing in some of these unsolved crazy things you're seeing yeah so for these for the super rare conditions that we're seeing many and most of them are purely genetic where there's a single chain the single change out of 6 billion base pairs in your in your genome just one single incorrect base pair and all of a sudden you have this awful condition. And so for the very, very rare conditions, it's almost always like that. For the not as rare conditions um, that affect you know larger numbers, it's very complicated. So it's this sure. kind of complex interplay. As you mentioned, cancer is a great example where there's a complex interplay of some genetic background, but but really your life, your lifestyle, your exposures, and um, what you eat, how much you exercise. Um, I I personally, as we mentioned earlier, um, used to exercise all the time and eat really well. You're and, the picture of health. That's right. And, Literally, and, it was the picture. If you were going to do a picture of health, we could show the picture. Like you were the picture of health. And then I got really really sick, and and I. Um, you know, despite, you know, eating perfectly and exercising all the time. And I had this like kind of pendulum swing where I went like, I haven't had a hamburger in 10 years because I've been eating so healthy. Like, and this is where it got me. Right. And so all of a sudden the pendulum swung way too far where I was like, all I'm going to do is eat hamburgers. Right. And then now that I'm doing well and I'm, I'm thinking about the future now, it's okay. I can't just eat hamburgers all the time. <laughs> I need to actually do things um, that, that are good for my health as well. Well, I think it's an important perspective, you know, that, we talk to a lot of functional medicine doctors and what they'll say is your genes, not your destiny. You can do things that mm -hmm. turn genes on and off. And Absolutely. Look, on one hand, that's super, that's very empowering. Like, okay, this thing runs in my family. I know what it is. I'm going to make adjustments that, you know, that, that, that legacy stopped 
with my you know father or mother and a, a new day yeah. with me and yeah. that's empowering having that information on the other hand i think sometimes there is pressure when you know someone is the picture of health and something happens can quickly become you know why me what did i do wrong yeah there'll be sometimes stigma well you know that person was in our world in the, in the hardcore world of alternative health if you yeah. will well, you know, maybe they were you know, very stressed or they were mm -hmm. angry or, you know what, they were having too much sugar and, mm -hmm. and everything. It was a lifestyle choice. And then there's some like preconceived notions, maybe some, some shame, some mm -hmm. guilt. But I think it's an important note that sometimes you're just shit happens. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. I think that it's so critical to utilize all of the data from functional medicine and how to prevent disease. But I think it's important it stops when disease happens that you don't, as you said, feel guilty or that you don't think that you did something wrong or, or you know, your job or your family, some, someone caused this disease. I think that's, that's really important. And sometimes it's powerful just to say, so like, you know, put it in the, I don't know drawer. Well, like, you know, cause I'm sure part of you is like, why this, you know, what, what, what was it? You know, I'm yeah. guessing oh, the, the, the scientist in you is, yeah. is trying to, well, maybe it was this over here yeah. or that over there. And sometimes you put it, you put it away in the, I don't know drawer and says, you know what? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be okay with that, but I'm going to move on. And that's right. And, and I think that that's hard. It, it's really hard. And I think that, um, Something that I, I know you talk about and why you uh, started Mind Body Green is because you wanted to kind of pull all these things together. You know, it's not, as I've heard you say before, it's not three words, it's one word, you mm -hmm. know, bringing together these three things. And I think that having that sort of clarity about um, how all of these aspects of your life work together and how um, uh, no, nothing nothing happens on its own. I think that can sometimes help you to say, you know, it's complicated. I, I don't know what piece of, you know, mind, mind, body, green it is, but but these are all together and it's hard to separate one versus the mm -hmm. other. And so I'm just going to say, I, I don't know how this fits in. So how has your perspective changed? You know, fast forward to today, you're married, you have a beautiful child. Yeah. Like, how has your perspective changed on life? What, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? So the first thing that I do when I wake up uh, is I, I look at the, the monitor uh, next to my bed and I, and I see if Amelia's awake, uh, my 18-month-old my daughter. If she is, I, I run down and I grab her and I bring her up into bed and um, she sits with us for a couple minutes. I wish it was longer, but it, it's only a few minutes, but it's a really precious few minutes um, where we uh, just spend time together. And uh, that like helps to kind of set my day. It's like with Amelia, with Caitlin, um, and then I start start, you know, rushing to get ready for the day. Um, but before I leave the door, um, another really important thing is that I, I take three pills, you know, these, this drug serolimus from the island of, of Rapa Nui. Um, and I, I want to go to Easter Island so bad. I, I, I like, I want to like dig in the soil. I want to like get in there. In we got a sandbox in our house full with the sand. Yeah. I, I want, I want to get there so bad one, one day. Um, but so, you know, my morning is, is, is seeing Amelia. It's, it's taking my medication. It's getting ready to go um, and spend a day continuing to fight Castleman disease. I mean, right now I'm not physically battling and I'm not in the hospital, um, but I spend my days fighting this disease in the lab and fighting, the fighting this disease, um, uh, analyzing data and trying to figure out what's going on. I, I think probably one overarching theme about how I am different today 
than when I first got sick. It's an analogy that I think will resonate with you as as a basketball player, and that's um, the concept of overtime. And so you you know in overtime, um, every second counts, and uh, there's this, at least for me, uh, there's this intense focus that you get in clarity in overtime. Um, At least in in college football overtime, there's no clock, and so it's it's basically like all focus on like every play, and it's um, uh, full clarity on, on what the purpose is. You know, you can make a mistake in the first quarter of a football game. You can throw an interception, and you can make up for it. But in overtime, you can't make a mistake. Every second counts. Every action it needs to be intentional. And you'd think that that would create, like, maybe anxiety or fear. Um, but I think it's actually calming because it's like, this is, this is what's important to me. And, and for me, what's important to me is my family and, and my, my research. And so I live with this concept of overtime. I mean, I had my last rights read to me in November of 2010, and I've considered, considered that the start of my overtime. So now I'm in my fifth overtime and in overtime, I have this real clarity that, you know, my family, um, the people that I love and and, and the work that I love. And and that helps me to to just really stay focused. Every day you wake up grateful, I'm assuming. So grateful and and honestly surprised that, you know, that I'm waking up and, you know, I I feel my port that I have below the skin um, that I get chemo infused into. And and it it reminds me like I got to keep working. Because there's a lot of other patients out there who are just waiting for us. Amen. I wish everyone listening had your mindset. So last question, the power of humor. So you would think that in the midst of really, really tough times that humor would maybe be like the last thing that you would be thinking about. And, you know, who, who wants to, you know, who would be laughing when, when they're going through really tough times. But I've actually found that humor is so, so important during really, really tough times. I shared earlier about when my dad and I uh, went for that walk and uh, I was mis- uh, I was confused as, as my dad's pregnant wife. Um, <laughs> but, but that was just... I think I learned to laugh in that case actually from my mom and from um, a number of experiences when she was going through her own illness. I remember uh, when she had the first brain surgery uh, to treat her disease, and we were so worried about if we would still have my mom after the surgery, would she still be the same person? And I remember when they pulled back the curtain, uh, my mom was uh, was sitting up, and um, she had uh, bandages all over her head, and she had a, a bulb uh basically coming out of her head and we were just so scared didn't know what to say and she looked at us and she pointed to her head and she said chiquita banana lady (laughs) and we just burst into laughter and like that is what we needed we needed her we were so afraid we didn't know what um, we were going to see or what was going to happen but we needed that sort of just lightheartedness connection because Laughing is so important, but more so than just laughing on your own, you know, watching a YouTube video, laughing with the people that you love, I think creates a connection that's hard to describe. My dad and I have had that connection, my sisters, my wife, um, finding ways to connect with people um, around something that you laugh, but I I don't think anything can beat that. So in addition to humor, what are the other you know, if you had to summarize the life lessons you carry with you today, what are the, some of the others? Yeah, so you, as I've said earlier, you learn a lot about life from almost dying. And so uh, humor is certainly one of those lessons in the midst of really tough times. Another is the concept of overtime that, you know, I felt like I'm in overtime, but I've also learned that actually we're all in overtime and we all should be living um, with the kind of mindfulness and clarity of purpose that I think comes with being in overtime. Another is around turning hope into action 
action. I talked about earlier how you can be hopeful and take action. Don't just hope, but turn your hope into action. Um, Another one is that sometimes solutions can be hiding in plain sight. You know, you may think um, that there's some complex, challenging solution. So in my case, what might be treating, you know, what drug should I take? Maybe we have to develop a new drug and spend 10 years, but actually this drug was just sitting at my neighborhood pharmacy. And and another lesson um, that, that I live with and that I talk about a lot in Chasing My Cure is this concept that if it was just me working on my own, um, we would have made no progress and I wouldn't be here. I, I literally wouldn't be sitting here, but because I've had this amazing team, I call them our army, you know, our, our Castleman warrior army, because of this team, we have made so much progress in the fight against Castleman disease. So it shouldn't be chasing my cure. It should be chasing our cure um, because there've been so many people that have been a part of this. And I think that, you know, all too well, I know you've got um, a great partner in crime and your wife here with mind, body green, but it's just, it's, important um, to fight with people. Amen to that. We'll close there. David, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. When you go through really, really tough times, there's a a quote from Robin Roberts, to make your mess your message. And um, that's really what what I'm trying to do. I I wish I hadn't gone through all of that stuff. I mean, I really wish that I hadn't gone through all this. I wish my family didn't go through this. But if you are going to go through these sort of things, um, uh, you you do learn a lot about life and a lot about living from nearly dying. And so that's why I'm trying to spread the word about these lessons about life through Chasing My Cure, through getting on podcasts like this with you to be able to talk to people about these really critical life lessons over time, hope, um, you know, making the most of the time that you have, turning hope into action. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, David.